This morning's scripture is from the book of Psalms, Psalm 1. This is God's word. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like shaft that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. All right, before I introduce our speaker this morning, we do have a couple guests joining us. Uh, we have Jonathan Tolson joining us. If you can raise your hand for us. Oh, this is Jonathan. Thank you. And I think uh, it's a family member or related to uh, Becky, who's also from, KM, from the KM. We also have um, Seon. I believe it's Stephen's cousin, Seon. Could you raise your hand for us this morning? <laughs> There's Seon right there. And lastly, we have Chu Young joining us. Chu Young, if you could raise your hand. Uh, I do not see a hand. But anyway, uh, thank you guys for joining us this morning for our worship. Uh, let's, let's give our newcomers a, a welcome. I also have the privilege of introducing our guest speaker uh, this morning. Uh, Pastor Mike, he has uh, spoken for us many, many times before. Um, I said this at 9 a.m., but I look back at our uh, preaching schedule, and in 2016, he preached for us five weeks in a row. So he's very familiar with us, and I think some of us know him. Uh, but for those of us that may not know him, um, Pastor Mike serves as an associate pastor at Grace Downtown, which is a network of churches, um, Grace DC Network in, in the city. Um, he received his Master of Divinity and Doctor of Ministry at Covenant Theological Seminary. Uh, I believe that's down in St. Louis. In addition, uh, he's also the U.S. Director with Radstock Ministries, which is a missions organization that we support as a church. It's an international missions organization committed to connecting churches for missions in difficult parts of the world. Not only that, he's a very busy man. <laughs> he's a Director of Admissions and uh, Guest Lecturer at our favorite seminary, Reformed Theological Seminary uh, in McLean. Um, and he currently lives in D.C. with his wife and his four kids, and he enjoys, you know, in his free time exercising, reading, watching movies, and spending time with his four kids. So without further ado, let me uh, invite Pastor Mark to come up, and let's, let's give him a warm welcome. Good morning. Good morning. It's a joy to be with you all. Um, I know when uh, I was introduced this morning, um, with the words, and he's here all the time. I felt like I need to clarify that. I, my, my church meets on Sunday evenings only, and so I'm not cheating on my church. Does it make sense? Okay, so I'm not skipping my service to be here, but after the service, I'll go home, eat, rest, and then attend my church. Uh, anytime I get a chance to come out to Virginia uh, to be a part of a worship service like this, I take it because it's sort of like a homecoming for me. I grew up here in Northern Virginia, went to Oakton High School, grew up in KCPC, met who is now my wife uh, at Oakton High School in ninth grade. 
And, uh, you know, in high school, in high school you, you, you don't, like, look up or down. You're, like, locked in your grade. And so as a freshman, I saw this lovely sophomore lady. I thought, it's too bad. <laughs> but the Lord would have different plans. And now we're married, have been for 18 years or so. I should know this. It's not being recorded, right? 18 years. Um, and then we have uh, four kids, 16, 14, 12, 10. The oldest is now driving. Uh, and uh, if you've ever driven in Washington, D.C., you know how narrow the roads are with all the roundabouts. And then you mix that chaos with people from Alabama who have maybe one traffic light in their neighborhood, like trying to navigate that. Um, it's a mess. And so talk about a white-knuckle experience uh, getting in the passenger seat, trying to teach your daughter how to drive. So pray for us. Um, pray for us. We're going to look at Psalm 1. Um, where's Charlie? Man, why you got to do that with Psalm 90? It messed me up. I love the Psalms, and I'm not alone in this. Um, the great reformer, John Calvin, says his two favorite books in the Bible are Romans and Psalms. Why? Because he's familiar with suffering. Uh, they had a kid, and about uh, two weeks after the birth, the child died, and not long thereafter, his wife died. And as uh, a reformer trying to reform the church, uh, he had to say goodbye to a lot of friends. Just imagine in a matter of months, you had to look across the aisle right here in this congregation and label each other as heretics and be sworn enemies who would never fellowship again. That was a world that Calvin and many other reformers lived in in early 1500s. And so to find comfort Yes, he went to the Bible, but he went to the Psalms. The Lord gives us songs for every season of life. Psalm 90, one of my favorites that we sang about and heard this morning. It's a psalm of Moses. And if you understand Israel's history, that passage all of a sudden comes alive even more. I mean, it's so beautiful. Um, and you think about everything that the Israelites went the slavery, the exodus, the wilderness, the promise of the good world to come. So when Moses says, establish the work of our hands, he's not saying, make my business better. Let me get that promotion. Let me find that love of my life. No, he's saying, build your kingdom through us so that the nations will know the greatness of our God, that we would be a light in this dark world. It's beautiful. This, I, I kind of wish I'd preached on that now. I, Throw this out and just preach at Psalm 90. But we're going to look at Psalm 1 uh, together. Let me pray for us and we'll dive in. Father, we bow our hearts before you. You are the author and perfecter of our faith. And Lord, even today, you are committed to, you have bound yourself with a blood oath to do this very work of forming your people into the likeness of Christ in both character and conduct. And we pray that you would do that. Beautify your church, your bride so that the watching world would see something that is good, true, and beautiful in us and will ultimately see Christ. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Uh, I have four kids, and uh, because we are a rather large family, uh, we don't really fly for vacation. And so, uh, especially in the earlier years, we would take out a map, draw a circle, and say, okay, where can we go for family vacation? 
And one year, uh, we decided that we're going to go beyond that little circle and go down to Panama City, Florida. Anyone drive from here to Panama City, Florida? It's a long drive, isn't it? And in that 16-hour car ride, my children began their familiar song. Now, for those of you parents and non-parents, I know that you know these lyrics by heart. The first verse goes something like this. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? The second verse, I need to pee. I need to pee. I need to pee. The third verse always has a little bit of angst. He hit me. He hit me. He hit me. Fourth verse, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. I'm like, look, we just came out of a rest stop. How can you be thirsty? How can you have to go pee again? But if you have kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And as we entered middle of nowhere, Alabama, they added a new verse to their favorite song. And it went something like this. Where are we? Where are we? Where are we? Now, if you ever made that drive, you know that that part of Alabama has nothing. <laughs> you're just driving through basically trees and paved roads. And if you're lucky enough, you will see a car or two. Sometimes GPS will do funny things to you. And as we are going down middle of nowhere, Alabama, I too joined that song in singing, where are we, where are we, where are we? If you can't beat them, you got to join them. And I really meant it because I thought, are we lost? Where are we? And so I took my two fingers and I pinched the map. I'm sure that's not the technical term for those of you techies, but I pinched the map. And you know what it does. It sort of pulls in the whole journey, and so you gain perspective. You realize that where you are currently is part of this longer journey, and it will definitely take you to where you need to go. And for many of us sitting here today, we feel like we're in middle of nowhere, Alabama. Where are we? What's going on? And even worse, we wonder, has God forgotten me? Am I beyond the reach of his grace? And we have all these questions, and we live with the weight and the burden of the emotional and the mental stress of trying to make it through life in the midst of all these challenges outside of Eden. And the psalmist here invites us to come, sit, listen, and gain perspective. When I zoomed in and saw the entire journey, I gained perspective, which helped me to press on, but it didn't change the fact that I was still in the middle of Alabama. And so even though we will dive into Psalm 1 and gain perspective and how life on this side of heaven is tough at times, it may not change where you are. It won't, actually. But it offers you grace for today. And it offers you strength for you to be anchored into so that whatever it is that you're going through, that you can do it with grace for the glory of Christ and for your own good. The psalmist encourages us with several things, but before, before we get into that, he reminds us, at least one of the ways that he encourages us, is that all the challenges that we face here on this side of eternity will expire one day that he who came will come again and he will make every sad thing untrue. But in the meantime, we have this hope, this promise 
that God is committed to changing us into the likeness of Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, our light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And we must never lose sight of this grand promise, this meta promise that God has given to us in his word. Because without it as an anchor point, we're gonna look at every day, especially these moments that confuse us and that bring us pain. And we're gonna wonder out loud, what's the point? Where am I? Has he forgotten? Am I beyond the reach of his grace? And so let's sit in and listen to the three things that the psalmist reminds us of in Psalm 1 to encourage us in this journey. He understands how difficult this journey can be and that often we will experience these moments where we're confused. And so he says, don't fret, sit in, let's listen. The first thing that he reminds us is that this journey we are on as God's people is a blessed one. Psalm 1, verse 1 and 2 read, Blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers or scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The psalmist here zeroes in on the heart of this individual who is the opposite of the blessed. Verse 1 is not a list of sins going from mild to severe like small white lie to murder, but it really is the heart of an unrepentant sinner. And here's the imagery, the progression. First, he begins to walk in the counsel of the wicked. And we understand what it means to walk, don't we? Because even today, we have this phrase, you can talk the talk, but can you really walk the walk? Meaning, have you really embraced it for yourself? Have you owned it? Is it part of who you are? And here, we're told that the wicked... They walk in the way, okay, of the wicked, this evil person, the counsel of the wicked. But he doesn't stop there. He actually continues. And he begins to stand in the way of sinners. What does it mean to stand in the way of sinners? It means to advocate for, to support something. Again, we understand this in our 21st century. To say, I stand with so-and-so, and I stand for something, means that I advocate it, I champion it. It's part of who I am, and I believe in this with all my heart. So here is this person who is the opposite of the blessed, who walks in and now stands, and eventually he sits in the seat of mockers or scoffers. What does it mean? It's basically to become the embodiment of the very thing that is blessed and good. And in this progression, in this metaphor, we realize the heart of a wicked person. It begins, it be, begins small. You walk it. And then you stand in it. And you sit and take a place among those who look at the blessed and say, you're stupid. Really? Why? Come join us here. The water is warm. Plenty of seats in our bandwagon. And you would think, because of Hebrew poetry, that verse 2, when it talks about the blessed person, would read something like this. Rather, he walks in the counsel of the just, stands in the way of the righteous, and sits 
in the seat of encouragers, but that's not what we find. Rather, it says, he delights in the law of the Lord. Again, focuses on in the heart. This is how the wicked are, those that are out there, but the ones that are truly blessed, they delight in the law of the Lord. To delight in something or someone is a universal experience. You don't have to be a Christian to delight in something or someone, okay? Why is that? Some authors would say this is the echoes of Eden, that even though we're broken and tainted by sin, we can look at the good world that God has created and still somewhere in the recesses of our heart say, it is good. It is good. Indeed, the one who made everything is good, and therefore the world is good. My family and I just came back from our trip to California. We did not drive there. Um, and, uh, you know, we were staying out in Huntington Beach, enjoying the beautiful sunset, the water, all of that stuff. And uh, as um, we were uh, sitting down for dinner one night, because the next morning, we were going to surprise our kids with the trip to the desert. I know, when I say it like that, it doesn't sound right to me either. Uh, but I'm like, kids, tomorrow, we're going to drive three hours into the desert and look at some mountains. And then my 10-year-old son, who has no filter, goes, what? We're going to go to the desert and look at mountains? That is stupid. <laughs> and I'm like, well, now that you say it like that, yeah, it does kind of sound stupid, doesn't it? But I'm like, look, I pull the boys aside. This is for mommy, okay? She wants to do this, so we're going to do this. So just be quiet and enjoy yourselves. That car ride, we were miserable, me too, because we're going to the desert to look at a mountain. My 10-year-old self was echoing those words back to me, and I'm like, it is stupid. Why are we doing this? We were just at the beach. So we get out there. We go to Palm Springs. I'm afraid of heights. Anyone else afraid of heights? And you get in this metal contraption, with like 50 other people, barely hanging on to a metal wire that may or may not snap at any point, and you're going up 10,000 plus feet to a mountain. And you're like, God, please be with whoever's operating. I mean, I pray the most sincere prayers when I'm in the airplane or when I'm like on things like that. And then afterwards, we drive to the desert. We're standing at the mountain, and I'm like encouraging the kids, like, come on, this is for mommy. This is for mommy. And to make matters worse, you know what happens to my third kid, the first son? He gets stung by a bee. What bee lives up in like 8,000 feet in the air? Like, how does that air, like, how is that breathable? But there were bees. And he gets, he's like, this is stupid. I knew it. I'm like, guys, this is for mommy. And then something happened. The sun began to set. And all of a sudden, the sky was painted with all kinds of colors. The cascade of mountains just looked more beautiful, defined even. And my boys, 12 and 10, stood there, one with a really painful finger, and looked at all this, and they said, I guess it's kind of nice. <laughs> you know? And I said, that's it. Me being a preacher, I'm like, this is the moment. I got to seize this moment to preach common grace. And I said to the boys, you know, you know what that is? C.S. Lewis would say to you, if he were alive and here with us today, that this is the echoes of Eden. That all of these beautiful things, the good things in life that our hearts take delight in, point us to the ultimate thing 
which is God, our greatest delight. The sunset, the mountains, the delicious Korean food we had in Cape Town, the beach at Huntington, all of these things remind us that there's someone behind all of this, and he is the ultimate reality, the one, the greatest treasure that our hearts delight in. They're like, Dad, please stop. You preach to us all the time. But I thought it was good. I, I thought it... But these good things, they often become God things, don't they? And that's the temptation that all of us face. If you want to know what has become your functional God, your Savior, that you bow before to basically say, save me from this miserable life that I'm in, pay attention to your daydreams. These moments of boredom, when your mind wanders off to the things that you often do and you replay them over and over and over again, they're actually sacred. They're windows into the most sacred part of your heart and they show us what you love, what you long for, what your gods are. As a kid, I bought into the whole Gatorade thing. I want to be like Mike. And every time I played basketball, I thought, man, I'm going to go out there and do that one move, and I'm going to impress all my friends. And they're going to carry me off the court on their shoulders. Mike, 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 Mike. Rudy, anyone? Us older folks? If you don't know what that is, it's okay. <laughs> but in a silly way, that's true of all of us. We have daydreams where we are great, where we're in love, where we're satisfied, where we're secure, where we're recognized and known. Why? Because these are the things that our hearts long for. And the thing that you gravitate toward, that's your God. That's your God. And this happens all the time, not only for Christians, but for, not only for non-Christians, but Christians too. Even though we understand the gospel and we have received the word, word incarnate Christ himself, we battle with this heart that's constantly turning to things and other people as our Savior. So how do we disciple ourselves so that we don't turn to these things as functional saviors? Instead, we turn to the Lord and bow before the one true God who is our ultimate delight. How do we do this? We have, we have to learn to delight in the law of the Lord. Delighting in the law of the Lord is not easy. See my kids trying to ride a bike or learn a skateboard or swing a bat or play the, the piano, and it is painful to watch. Not only for them, but for me too. It's like, ugh, what in the, it's painful. But over time and through rep, you begin to understand, oh, this is how it's done. And you gain insight and wisdom into these things. And before long, you enjoy it for what it is. And you see the benefit and the reward of playing an instrument or riding the bike. Just like that, learning to delight in the law of the Lord is a discipline. And if you turn to the word today without any sort of commitment and training, you're not going to get anything out of it. But stick with it. Keep on reading the word. Keep on studying the word. Keep on discussing the word together. Hear it preached. And here's how you really learn the word. Live it out. When you live out the word, you begin to realize the beauty and the truthfulness of the word itself. 
Because if the word is simply a long list of propositional truth, it's not very beautiful. When was the last time you actually read the U.S. Constitution or even the Federalist paper and thought, beautiful. This is beautiful. Oh, my gosh. Madison, thank you. Hamilton, thank you. Adams, not really. When was the last time you said that? Probably never. You know why? Because propositional truth, though helpful, is not beautiful. But once you flush that out and see it in real time, how it helps relationships and society and nations live in harmony, you realize, wow, this is good. And the same thing for the Word. If you get into the Word and read and read and read, and especially you get to places like Leviticus, Numbers, ooh, Minor Prophets, it's not beautiful. You're going to be like, what is this? Close, done. No, you need to commit. You need to study it. You got pastors and interns who can help you along the way in this journey. There's so many resources out there for you at your disposal. I mean, my wife reads more than I do now. Can, can I say? She like constantly is like, oh, you know what I read today from Keller and this? I'm like, wow, you should be the pastor. <laughs> There's so much out there. And I want to encourage you to be a student of the word. And understand that it is a discipline. And you have to develop an appetite for it. Because right now, it might be very off-putting, but before long, eventually, you will see, as you live it out, the beauty of God's Word. I immigrated to the States when I was 10 years old, back in 1985. So I grew up in the 70s and early 80s of Korea. Only the most elite amongst us have ever seen and tasted American cheese back then in Korea. And so when I first immigrated, my cousins thought, how else can we show Mike the rich beauty of American culture than to take him to Pizza Hut? I have never seen cheese in my life. So we, I go to Pizza Hut, I look at this round thing, and I smell, I get sick. I, now I love pizza. I do. What happened? Because I kept going back to it over and over again. And before long, I'm like, you don't have to tell me. You don't have to convince me that pizza is good. No, I know it's good. And so now I go and I will order it myself. That's how it is with God's word. But all too often, we stop short of getting to that point where we can really feast on the word. And keep in mind, when the psalmist is saying the blessed person delights in the word, He's not talking about the gospel. You know that? And when Paul is praising the goodness of God's word, he's not talking about the gospel as we know it here in 21st century. You know what they're talking about? The Old Testament. I know, the Old Testament. The law. Exodus. Yes, that's what they're talking about. The blessed person who delights in the law of the Lord, he's the one who meditates on Exodus 20, 21, 22. Yeah, I probably lost you at this point. What's that whole thing about not wearing clothes that are like 60% cotton and 40% polyester? What? Why is that sinful? And, and we can't trim the edges of our beards? Like, what? And not even the sides of our hair? Like, hey, I like it tapered. And you're telling me that this is sin? That's what the old... That's what they're talking about right now, okay? They love the Word of God. Why? Because the Word of God, even the law, 
is a window into the very heart of the lawgiver. If you want to know what God is like, go to the Word of God, not just the Gospels. Do yourself a favor and eat the entire seven-course meal and not just the dessert. Get into the Old Testament and see what it's talking about. Because it's one thing to watch the last 10 minutes of the Return of the King, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and be like, yeah, what happened? Like, what, what's the big deal? You, you got to see the whole thing. <laughs> then you realize, oh, wow, it is a big deal. And so if you get to the Gospels and you love it and celebrate it, great. But how about getting to the Old Testament where everything, even in the Old Testament, is pointing to you, to the lawgiver. And you know what we see when we get to the Old Testament and take God's word seriously? We see that he is indeed just, righteous, merciful, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. And the laws reflect this. Yes, the law cannot save us. It is a taskmaster, basically showing us the standard that we cannot meet, but it's also pointing us to the one who can and therefore can save us. But the law itself says, look at the heart of God. He, care for, he cares for the widows, the orphans, and the strangers among us. And so as God's people, our application every Sunday is as we come before God. This is a covenant renewal. You know this? You appearing before God and God coming to meet you. This is not just worship. This is covenant renewal. You're basically saying what God has said throughout the Old Testament. I will be your God and you will be my people. And through the songs, through the prayers, through the word, through sacraments that you partake of, you are saying, you are my God. We are your people. You're renewing that covenant. And therefore, as you receive the word of benediction, benediction, good word, you are committed to then going out through these doors to create a world that reflects the Old Testament in all its beauty. One where we are committed to each other, committed to God, caring for the widow, the orphan, the voiceless, the weak, the marginalized, so that we as a community really function as a light to the world. It is too small of a thing, God would say, for me to bless this church only. Remember that prophecy in Isaiah? It is too small of a thing to bless Israel only. His heart is for the nations. And what gets sort of established in the Old Testament echoes. I mean, you can't miss it in the New Testament. Go and make disciples of all nations. Right? You got to get into the word. You got to develop an appetite for it. See it as a discipline. Okay? Because when you learn to delight in the law of the Lord, you will truly be happy. That's what the Hebrew word blessed means. It literally means happy. In other words, Psalm 1 verse 1 could be read, happy is the person who does not blank, 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 but delights in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. Happy person, the psalmist says, is the one who has gone through the hard work and now has an appetite for the word and can get into the word, dig rich, rich truths out of it and feed himself or herself. That is a happy person. Does it sound kind of weird? Because the world, will tell, tells, uh, the world tells us that happiness 
It's not being here today, but it's being in some exotic island, vacationing with your loved ones. Happiness is being promoted yet again, corner office, seven-figure salary. Happiness is finding the true love of your life, never to be lonely again. Let me remind you that all who have pursued the world's definition of happiness came up empty-handed, utterly disillusioned. It is a dead end. It really is. Christian faith offers a different route to happiness, a sure way to true, deep, and abiding happiness, and that is a relationship with God. And again, we understand this. This is not just some religious platitude. We understand this at a human level. Because when you go on vacation and spend time with people, what do you say? It's not really what. It's not even where, but it's who we're with. That's what makes it most meaningful. Sure, when you go to Hawaii or some other exotic place, it's nice. The grandeur and the beauty of all that is like breathtaking. Wow, this is great. But at the end of the day, you want to be with your best friends. I mean, I see this play out in my kids. They can do the dumbest thing. They can literally kick rocks with their best friends in the neighborhood, and it is the best time of their lives. Why? Because we understand that human relationship is what we're made for. Again, in the very deep recesses of our hearts, we affirm this. Just as we look at the sunset and we say, wow. The human relationship, we say, wow. And that's why in the Bible, God offers not just things, but he offers himself to us, the greatest treasure. It's the who, it's not what, where, but it's the who. And he offers himself in relationship with us. This is the greatest delight, greatest treasure. And if you can tap into that by faith, through discipline, through the help of the community, you can truly be happy. This happy person, secondly, prospers in all that he does. Verse 3 and 4, he is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers, not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. What is chaff? I remember, like I said, I grew up in Korea back in the 70s and and, uh, we had some relatives out in the countryside and so we would go Uh, you know, every now and then, and because I was just a young kid, my job during harvest season was to turn this giant fan, okay? I would turn the giant fan, and my uncles would basically take grain mixed with chaff, and they would just throw it up in the air, okay? I mean, much more than just a handful. I mean, they would throw big chunks of it up in the air, and as I'm cranking this giant fan, the wind will force the chaff away, and the grain will fall right back to the ground. And after, like, what felt like hours, child labor, right, doing this, you have just grain and no chaff. What is chaff? Chaff is, it's lifeless. It's dead. It is rootless. It is not rooted in anything. There's no foundation to it. When the wind blows, it's gone, just like that. And it is fruitless. It cannot bear any fruit. Contrary to the chaff, this tree we find in verse 3 is full of life. It is full of life with vigor. It's got deep roots that can drink water from places where we do not see at times. 
And as a result, it is very fruitful. It is very fruitful. But what does it mean to be fruitful? It does not mean health, wealth, and prosperity. I know we sign off on the whole theology like, yeah, we don't believe in the whole prosperity theology, but functionally we do. Can I be honest? Functionally we do. I can't remember the last time I sat in men's group or small group or sat across a table from parents who are going through a lot and look, no judgment, no shame. I do this too. But I can't remember the last time someone said, I feel like the Lord is crushing me. I feel like the hand of God is heavy on me. And it just never stops. It's one thing after another. I can't catch a break. I feel like Job. Why? And I've never heard them say after that, and praise God for his severe mercy. How do we take the good and not the bad? How do we praise God for all the good things and not the bad things, the tough things? If we understand that God is out to form Christ in us in character and conduct, how do we not take all of that as God's kindness to us to say, praise God even for this? Why? Because functionally, we believe in health, wealth, and prosperity. But that's not what this imagery is about. If you are truly happy, deeply rooted in the word, your life is not going to be just filled with happiness and success and love, comfort. No, it's not that. In order to understand the point of this metaphor, you have to stay with the metaphor. What does it mean then for a tree to prosper? What does it mean for a tree to prosper? To get real tall so it can look at other trees and say, yeah, you guys are not like me at all. Look at me, look how high I am. These are like bare. Is it to look at all its fruit? Like, man, look at these delicious things I put. Oh, I'm so full. This is great. No. For a tree to prosper means that it provides shade for the weary and food for the hungry. In other words, for a tree to prosper means it cares well for its neighbors. That's what Psalm 1 is talking about. The truly blessed person, the happy person who's in the word is going to produce much fruit to nourish, to encourage, and strengthen others. And as a result of your life, your faith and faithfulness, people will turn to Christ, their only comfort in life and death, and walk steadfast before him. That's what it means to prosper as God's people. But once again, the cultural narrative challenges this because we have been taught, at least according to the script of Washington, that success to prosper is to be powerful, to be influential, to be well-connected, to be ahead of everybody in terms of knowledge and whatnot. I pastor a church in Washington, D.C., who basically all went to Harvard and Yale Law School because they were bored. It's like, where'd you go for college? Oh, I went to school in Boston. BU, BC, oh, Harvard, okay. And it's all about this. And I have to remind my congregation that you cannot measure success 
by the number of articles or litigations that you put out, but you measure success by how well you love your neighbor, even those in the margins. How often do we walk past the poor in the city without a second thought? And we say, well, they got prog programs for that. And there's wisdom there too, trust me. But how often do we do that with indifference and callousness in our hearts? That's not success. Because our Lord and Master, to demonstrate his great love, wrapped a servant's towel around his waist, got on his knees to wash his disciples' feet. If that is greatness, then the way we measure success has got to be different. I pray that that would be us, that we would be eager to love and serve well to not deprive ourselves of true greatness, which is humble service to the least of these. And the psalmist tells us that he who lives this kind of life, the one who is rooted and therefore fruitful, is known by God, which leads to our third point, known. Verses five and six. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The psalmist almost says, come, Sid, listen, I know life is hard. It's got many ups and downs. Sometimes it's going to feel like green pastures and still waters. And then there are times when it's going to feel like the valley of the shadow of death. I understand. So come, be encouraged. Remember that your journey is a truly blessed one. And your journey is a true prosperous one. But if that is not enough for you. Let me stack the deck by saying the end is going to look very different. Let me show you how all this is going to end. And so here in the last two verses, the psalmist fast forwards to how this is all going to end. And it's helpful to read Psalm 73 uh, in light of Psalm chapter 1 because Psalm 73 is almost like a commentary to Psalm 1, especially verses 5 and 6. Psalm 73 is one of the realest psalms in all of the scripture, and, and that's why I, I've gravitated towards it and loved it ever since I read it the first time. And the psalmist basically says, whew, that was a close one, man. Whew, I, I almost really messed things up. Let me tell you how. He says, you know, I, I actually did the whole church thing. This is my translation of it. I did the whole church thing, man. I, I did the Sunday school. I read the Bible. I went on a short-term mission trip. I served. I set up chairs. I cleaned up afterwards. I became a Bible study leader. I was a deacon, became an elder, was even thinking about becoming a pastor or a missionary one day, man. I, I did all of that. And then I looked over at my next-door neighbor, who is not a Christian, devout atheist, and every Sunday morning when I get in the car to go to church, he laughs at me. He thinks I'm stupid for what I'm doing. So you're going to go talk to something that doesn't exist that you can't see. Wow, awesome. Yeah, have fun, delusional guy. His life is perfect. The guy gets never sick, never. His wife hasn't aged one bit in the past 40 years. She still looks like she's like 23. And their kids never disobey him. I heard they're all going to Harvard. What in the world? And their grass, never a dead spot. What does he do? This thing is lush. It's like the Garden of Eden itself. Like, how can this be? 
Like, how, how can this be? And he just won the lottery, I heard. Like, what is going on? And so the psalmist says, okay, I got to rethink this. Because I thought that if I do all of these things right, that God would bless me. But I look over here at this guy who doesn't do any of these things. That's the life I want. Can I even say that out loud? Okay, I said it out loud. That's the life I want, God. And he is angry. And the more he thought about it, it oppressed him. Listen to these words in Psalm 73. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. That's how he describes the angst that he's dealing with as he's doing a side-by-side comparison with his non-Christian neighbor. And he is like ready to call it a day. So I'm done. You know what? No more. This God thing, forget it. Because I want what he has. Until I enter the sanctuary of God. Middle of Psalm 73, and now everything pivots. 180, I mean, just almost a whiplash speed. He says, praise God that I am where I am. Oh, my goodness. I almost like, lost everything I had. I almost forsook the very thing I had for this temporary thing because now in the sanctuary of God, I behold him, his promise, and I see how all this ends. I now have perspective and realize that winning at halftime is really not winning. Being ahead on the ninth hole is not really being ahead just because I go through ups and downs in life because of my faith, because of my commitment to loving and serving others in generous and hospitable ways, I'm not losing at all because this is all going somewhere and that is how it's going to end. And here in Psalm 1, the psalmist says, on that day, the Lord will judge the wicked he would judge the wicked. Not because they didn't believe in Jesus, that too, but he would judge the wicked for their deeds. Read the New Testament. You too would be judged for your deeds. Did you know that? Now, you're like, oh my gosh, that doesn't sound like grace at all. No, you've been covered by the blood and the grace, of, but you will be rewarded for your deeds. That's why Jesus says, hey, don't, don't pursue the lesser things. Pursue the ultimate thing. Love well. That's what we just talked about. Serve well. Okay? Because that is the greater. And you will be blessed for your deeds. The Bible says. Again, don't fall into the whole, well, then I got it. No, 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 it's not. It's not. Grace has to be the starting point. It's got to energize you to humble and grateful deeds, okay? If you have any questions, please talk to your interns, okay? <laughs> but the Lord will judge the wicked for their deeds. And on that day, he will expose the hidden things and bring to light their evil deeds. Even though the wicked in Psalm 73 ask, does God know? Does he have eyes? The psalmist says, yes, he does. And on that day, he will call you to account. And you, on that day, will be like chaff. 
you would be gone. Everything that you thought was good disappear like a dream, a mist. And he will separate the righteous from the wicked. And this is what Jesus says in Matthew 25, doesn't he? He will separate the sheep from the goat. And based on your faith in Jesus and the things that you did for him, you will either be punished for all eternity in hell. I know that's not a popular doctrine these days, but it's true, okay? Or you'll be blessed and enter into rest for all eternity, okay? The Lord will judge the wicked. But he doesn't say the Lord will bless the righteous. What does he say in this passage? He says the Lord knows the righteous. What's the difference? Why doesn't he say the Lord knows the wicked and knows the righteous? Or that he would judge the wicked and bless the righteous? You know why? Because of the Hebrew word know. The Hebrew word to know connotes deep, intimate, personal relationship. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, when a husband knew his wife, they had a child. You do the math. That's how intimate this word know means. And here, surely the Lord knows the wicked, but he doesn't know them in that way. Instead, that's why the psalm says he would judge them. But the righteous, he knows them. You know what that means, God's people? He knows exactly where you are today. He knows and he cares. We often think, well, if God really knew everything about me, man, I don't, no, he does actually. He knows everything about you and more, and yet he keeps, he comes running to love on you. We have to understand the doctrine of justification. And the mistake that we make is we sort of understand the doctrine of sanctification and we read that back into justification as if we're justified based on our sanctification, but that is not true. No one is justified based on their perfect performance. That's Jesus only, okay? That's not us. We are justified, meaning we're declared righteous. We're declared perfect in righteousness. And therefore, we have been received as sons and daughters. There is no shame, no guilt, no judgment. That's why 1 John says, there is no fear, okay, in love. Perfect love drives out fear. It's not our love for God that drives out the fear we have about God's judgment. It's his perfect love for us that drives the fear in us. Ooh, what if? No, no, God loves you perfectly. God loves you perfectly. He knows you. He cares about you. And that's why he's committed to providing for you, protecting you, answering your prayers, giving grace and mercy for the day, speaks promises that are yes and amen over you because of Christ, the death and the resurrection. And he will one day return to make all things new. All of these things are true if you are in Christ. Now, if you have been following you may be wondering, I'm not sure if I'm on team wicked or team righteous. And what do we often do? We sort of go back and take stock of our lives. This past week, yeah, kind of good. Three weeks ago, oof, no, 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 not that. And we sort of gauge where we stand before God based on our performance, our merit. 
And so with that, and from there, we say, well, I guess I'm part of the wicked, and I got to repent. I got to get this right. I got to do more good things. Now, there's some truth there. But let me say, that is, you're missing everything. If you walk out of this service today, and you're thinking, I just got to read the Bible more, I got to meditate on more, and I got to go and love others well, give me five names. Just give me people I should love. Then I can be in the righteous. I can be favored and known by God in this. No, you missed everything. You, you, you totally misread Psalm 1. You see, Psalm 1, just like every other psalm in the Bible, is first and foremost about Jesus and not you. So when you read Psalm 1, you don't read Psalm 1 and ask yourself, am I team wicked or am I team righteous? No. You look at it as this is who Jesus is. He is truly the blessed person who does not walk in the way of the wicked or stand in, right, or sit in the seat. No. That's why he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am not the wicked of Psalm 1. He is truly the blessed person who delights in the law of the Lord day and night and lived it to the fullest till his dying moment. And because of that, he is this tree who now with his fruit, he nourishes us. And he invites us to come and find shade and shelter under his wings. This is about Jesus. And if you've placed your faith in him, God does not say, well, let's tally up all the good things and the bad things. No, he says, welcome in. You are righteous. Because of what Christ has done for you. You're perfect in righteousness. And therefore, you don't have to doubt you don't have to be ashamed. You don't have to fear. God knows you, everything about you, and he is committed to loving you and loving you well. I titled the sermon, Our Delight, because we need to, like Jesus, delight in the law of the Lord. We do. Just because we're in and made perfectly righteous because of our faith in Jesus does not mean we can do whatever we want. That is so far from the truth. If anything, we now have every reason to grow into what we see of Jesus in the scripture. Okay? And so we need to commit to delighting in the law of the Lord, meditating on it, living it out, so that we become little trees everywhere in this church community, in your neighborhoods, in your workplace, so that those who don't know Christ, who are out there starving in scorching heat, can find shelter and rest under us. We need to do that. But if you think that you had to do that by doing more, it's on me, I just got to try harder, you're not going to delight in anything. And you're certainly not going to delight in the Lord. Because it's going to become a burden, a heavy weight you cannot carry, and it will crush you. But... If you rest in the gospel, if you rest well in the fact that this psalm is about Jesus and what he has done for you and will continue to do until he returns, regardless of your performance, that you are welcomed in and you're nourished and encouraged and strengthened by his grace and mercy for you today, then your heart can begin to change. 
one of my favorite stories is Les Mis. I, I don't, any Les Mis fans? Jean Valjean, what a wicked man, a hard man. And yet it was the grace of God, really, that turned his heart. What can soften a man who is hell-bent on doing evil? Only the grace of God. What can change our hearts so that we actually want to become the person that we read about in Psalm 1? It's the grace of God. Yes, we must try harder. Yes, we must read, meditate, and apply. Yes, but we don't start there. That's not where our hope is. It begins by resting well in Christ who has done all this for you. Rest in it. Preach it to yourself. Let this be the meta story that you recount over and over and over again. The thing that your mind runs to when you are daydreaming. And let this gospel nourish you so that you can delight in the Lord and live into the person that you're called to be. Let's pray together. God, we're grateful for your word, for your truth. Thank you, Lord, for being our great Savior who gave himself for us. Thank you that you are the embodiment, the personification of Psalm 1, the beautiful, blessed person who, through his obedience, you nourish many and bring from the dead those who are now followers of Christ. Lord, we want to be like you, and we want to rest well in the grace that is ours. Teach us to do this, and may your grace be the fuel for our hearts so that we live for your glory, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.